Hello, and welcome to this episode of Fathom in Conversation, a new economics podcast. This is brought to you by Fathom Consulting, an independent research consultancy specializing in macroeconomics, geopolitics, and financial markets. In this series, titled The Rise of China, we explore the emergence of China, its extraordinary economic boom, and the impact that's had on the rest of the world. Each episode features an in-depth discussion with Fathom's team of economists, who use their knowledge and expertise provide insights into the Chinese economy. Episode 2, China, the elephant in the room. Hi, I'm Andrew Harris, and I'm joined today by Fathom CEO, Eric Britton. Hello. Today, we're going to discuss China's economic and political journey from the start of the 20th century. I'm going to kick things off, if I may, with one of my favourite quotes about China. And that quote is, It is impossible to do other than to assent to the unanimous verdict that China has, at length, come to the hour of her destiny. As modern as that quote sounds, the fascinating thing about it is that it wasn't written two days ago, or even two years. It was actually written over a hundred years ago, at the start of the 20th century, by Fullerton and Wilson in their book New China. Um, But China's hour definitely didn't come then. Indeed, it may well not have come yet. Nevertheless, I think the key to understanding the China of now is understanding the China of yesterday. Absolutely. That's uh, 1910 when that quote was written. Uh, It was two years before uh, the end of imperial China. So there was a turning point shortly after that in China's history. And uh, the transition after that, until China was uh, led by Chairman Mao from 19. 49 onwards, was a transition from a feudal economy to an economy run on Marxist-Leninist terms. And it's really important to remember, even now, with China as a modern, developing, partially market economy, that its roots are in Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics. And those roots are showing to this day and are important to grasp what China's motivations and what its intentions are in the global economy right now. Um, Karl Marx, back in uh, the 1800s, wrote that the contradictions inherent in the capitalist system, by which he meant the inequalities of income and wealth between the working people and the capitalists, those contradictions would eventually become so large as to bring capitalism down, that capitalism would collapse under the weight of those uh, contradictions. That Marxist analysis is something that led him to conclude that the countries that would first transition to socialism or to communism would be those in which capitalism had been allowed, first of all, to run its course, the countries where industry was built by very efficient means of production, which were developed under capitalism. That's how Marx saw the future when he was writing in the 1800s. So that would be places like the UK, presumably? UK and Germany were the ones that were the top of his list in terms of who would first of all transition to the socialist revolution. He was completely wrong about that. Uh, It didn't turn out that way. Marx was wrong about many things, amongst which those. The countries that actually went towards communism were feudal societies, Russia, Tsarist Russia, and then China, Imperial China, which had no substantial industry, had no capitalism to speak of, but instead had 
aristocrats and peasants and not much in between, a middle class in between, but it wasn't very large. And they were, there were no factories or anything like that to speak of in those economies. And the consequence of that was Marxism had to develop into something else, and the something else was Marxism-Leninism. Lenin took the, took the lead on that in the, in the intellectual process, at least in Russia, and that lead was adopted later by uh, China and adapted to the Chinese economy. Both Russia and China somehow or other had to get to the socialist, glorious, broad, sunlit uplands uh, without going through the capitalist phase that Marx saw as necessary. And that, the Leninist thing that did that, was five-year plans of rapid industrialization in a command-driven economy, an economy driven from the centre. Lenin achieved that in Soviet Russia in the period from 1917 onwards until his death, and Mao had adopted something similar to Marxism-Leninism when he came into China, but he didn't go with rapid industrialization in anything like the same way that Lenin did. And actually, the period while Mao was in charge in China was a period of pretty much stagnation in the Chinese economy. He talked about Marxism-Leninism, but really it was Maoism, and Maoism was a different concept altogether. But the Marxism-Leninism came back into vogue in China after Mao died, which was in the 1970s. And it was only after that that the process of rapid industrialization finally took place in China, and China finally made the transition from essentially a feudal society to the modern capitalist powerhouse that it now is. Because that period uh, where China was under Mao, um, obviously it saw countries like Japan undergo like massive industrialization, massive boom, and it you know it saw itself stuck in the economic slow lane whilst you know Japan and the others went sailing by absolutely stuck in the economic slow lane and bound up with uh, with ideological concerns that in the great leap backwards or forwards as it was described by Mao but in economic terms it's a colossal leap backwards and the cultural revolution concerns about uh, transforming the way people in China thought about themselves, thought about their role in Chinese society and so forth, rather than focusing on transforming the economy itself. That was what Mao was about, and in very crude terms, his aim was to secure his own leadership above all. It was really only after he died that things started to change. So when that was when uh, Deng Xiaoping came into power, not officially, but you know, very much behind the scenes, in the man in charge. Uh, and China was more successful, more or less, than anyone ever. Absolutely. The period since the mid-1970s, and particularly more recently, but since the mid-1970s, has seen a miracle, if you like, but an astonishingly rapid period of growth in the Chinese economy. It's like the lid has been kept on China pre the death of Mao, and post his death, that lid's been removed, and boy, how it's gone. It's, it's absolutely ballooned. And we've never seen, the global economy has never seen an economy of this size emerge at this rate over such a long period of time. It's absolutely unprecedented. And the impact of that, um, China has become the elephant in the global economy from being a minnow, really, or a mouse back in the day. It's emerged to be world's second largest economy, and in not a very long space of time, it will be the largest economy in the world. And the transformation in the standard of living, the real standard of living of the Chinese people, has been astonishing and 
overwhelmingly positive and benign uh, for that economy and indeed for the global economy over that period of time. It's this, this is something that cannot be overstated, the importance of that. And it's led to this, this famous curve, the, the elephant curve. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Branko Milanovic, fairly well-known commentator on these sorts of matters, developed something he called the elephant curve. And the elephant curve describes the growth in the standard of living in income per capita across the income deciles in the global population. So those at the very bottom end of that curve, so on the left-hand side, are those in the global population who earn a dollar a day or numbers like that, the extremely poor people of which there are billions still to this day. And the people at the far right of that curve are those, the one percenters who are exceptionally wealthy and have extremely high incomes by anybody's standards at any time. And the way it goes is the y-axis, the vertical axis, measures the degree to which income has grown since 1980, between 1980 and today, for each of those income groups. And essentially those at the bottom end of the income distribution have seen their income growth do very well, right up until you get to the 60th percentile or thereabouts. And at the 60th percentile, that growth rate falls to almost zero. Uh, so you can imagine the back and the head of an elephant being the growth rates achieved by the uh, lower end of the income distribution and then the trunk the bottom of the trunk being the trough uh, that 60th percentile is where the bottom end the entry level for advanced economy incomes starts so what's happened is there's been a redistribution over the last 30 40 years from people working people in advanced economies who've seen their income grow essentially not at all to working people in emerging economies above all in China who've seen their income grow very rapidly and then the one percenters who are the, the nose the end of the trunk have also seen their income rise very rapidly so the the whole shape is shaped a bit like an elephant and uh, therefore this chart is known as the elephant chart and I would describe it as the chart of the century so far anyway. There's so much embedded in that chart, so many interesting stories that flow from it. But one of them, standing back from it, is a story about a massive reduction in inequality at the global level which should be welcomed by anybody who believes that inequality is a bad thing. Um, such as myself and, and uh, most of us, I think, at Fathom Consulting, this is something massively to be welcomed. And China is at the heart of it. And the growth of Chinese manufacturing potential and, and productive capacity is what lies behind that transfer of income uh, from relatively wealthy people to very poor people in the global economy. And one of the manifestations of it is the hollowing out of manufacturing industry in advanced economies like the UK or Europe or, or the USA. Those industries, the employment of those industries has been shifted offshored to emerging economies, especially China, where it benefits from much cheaper labor costs, massively improving the standard of living in those economies. And this must not and should not be forgotten. And, as you say, we should congratulate Deng and his successors for this phenomenal achievement. Absolutely. And with that, we're brought to the end of our episode. This time, we've heard how Maoism led to China being stuck in an economic rut. We've heard how Deng managed to rescue China from this and ensure a long period of prolonged economic growth. And we've seen the impact that China has had on inequality at the global level. So thank you, Eric, for joining us. Thank you. Next time, 
We'll continue on our journey towards the present and we'll discuss how China's emergence and growing integration into the global economy has impacted the rest of the world. Until then, to read any of the material referenced in this episode or any other, go to the podcast section of our website at fathom-consulting.com where you can find the show notes. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any future content. Thank you for listening to Fathom in Conversation. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Fathom Consulting, presented by me, Andrew Harris, and both edited and produced by Liara Gabai. Fathom is an independent consultancy specializing in global macroeconomics, geopolitics, and financial market research. Our economists also produce in-depth research in China, and we have built a suite of analytical indicators specifically to monitor the Chinese economy. To find out more about our research and bespoke consultancy work, go to fathom-consulting.com. If you're interested in the data side of things, check out Fathom's chart book on Refinitiv's data stream and icon platform. This is our library of over 9,000 ready-made charts containing up-to-date global, macroeconomic and financial market data. Simply type CBook into your icon search bar to find out more. From all of us here at Fathom, thanks for listening to Fathom in Conversation.